0: If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, and we're going to start at verse 13. We're going to read all the way to the end of chapter 53. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah 52, and we'll begin at verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our sorrows and carried uh, borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Would you join with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. What a good word, a sweet word. And Lord, I pray that I would be faithful to proclaim simply your son in his gospel and your word that is before us. I pray that you would make us all faithful to hear your word and be shepherded by it. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever wondered why the world is so divided by the gospel. Why is it the world is so divided on the gospel, particularly those who have heard it? It's not even a matter of thinking that it is true or not, because Satan knows that the gospel is true and he still hates it. There's nothing Satan hates more than the gospel. But the question of, is the news of the the death and resurrection of Christ, is it the most glorious news, the most incredible display of power and holiness and sovereignty and glory and love? Or is it something that is mockable or insulting or a dreadful failure? Why is it that some people would die for this gospel and, would, and some would be so angry as to kill people to keep them from sharing it. We get a glimpse of why that is when we survey the cross. This scripture passage was written 700-ish years before the cross of Christ and it gives us a survey, it surveys this event of the cross. It tells us what was actually happening And why it is that it is so precious to some and so revolting to others. Our first point that we're going to get from Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. So we're going to just end the the first bit, the, the, um, uh, the end of 52. The first point is going to be this. God's wisdom displayed for the many who counted it foolishness. God's wisdom displayed for the many who counted it foolishness. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not been, has not been told them they see, that which they have not heard they understand. So this, is, this serves as an introduction to this most wonderful passage 52, uh, 13 to 15, is sort of an introduction to all of chapter 53, and it sets up this incredibly, uh, this irony, two drastically different perspectives on the same person, the same message, and the same event. First, we see the natural view, which is negative. What comes naturally to humanity? They're astonished. They find this to be foolish. They do not understand it. It makes no no sense to them. They see him beyond human semblance. They, when they look at the cross of Christ and when the people, the unsaved people, they looked at Christ on the cross, they say, that's not even human. Now, of course, that talks about how beat up he was. He was so crushed. He was so whipped. He was so distraught. He was so abused that he sort of lost some of his human likeness. But it's beyond that. When the world looks at him, they say, this is not my idea of what it means to be human. Human. This is not, it's not worthy to call this guy a man. I don't want to be associated with him. This is repulsive. This is a failure of life. This is not a goal for what any man should aspire to. This is not somebody that, they, that a man should look up to and see as their role model. This is a failure of a life. This is the natural view of all humanity at the cross and of the Lord Jesus Christ this is what we would naturally think of when we see Christ on the cross. And this is contrasted with the positive or the truth, the real view, reality, what is God's perspective on this man. He says, my servant, my servant shall act wisely. And by wise, he means, yes, that this is his, he's gonna act with wisdom. He's doing what is right but he's also talking about success. When it says that the the, the the servant of God, the Messiah, is going to do what is wise, he's saying it will. this is the wise thing to do. Not only is it the right thing to do, he knows just what to do. This is exactly what is needed. This is exactly what my people needed. And so he says he will be high. He will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. What the Lord is saying here is, my son on the cross, my servant on the cross, this is worth adoring and loving and honoring. I find this to be the most glorious man who has ever lived. This is wonderful. This is the pure display of God's character, and I love it. This is God's perspective. So, this is an introduction, it's setting this up. Another thing that sets us up in in this introduction, sets us up for the the, the rest of the text, is this idea of the many and the one. My servant and then the many. That phrase, the many, if you read the rest of 53, you'll see it shows up a whole bunch. This idea, the many. The one and the many. One man's servant would count as the benefit for many people. One servant and yet many people are served and benefit from his service. It says he will sprinkle many nations. If you have a footnote there, it might also say, or startle. The phrase is ambiguous. Does it mean that he's going to sprinkle many nations, or does it mean he's going to startle many nations? Startle actually fits. It fits with that previous where it says that, he, that people will be astonished. You see it has the same sort of, a, sort of a theme. As much as people don't want to look at it, they can't ignore him. They will notice him even if they hate him. One thing that humanity has not been able to do with Christ is ignore him. They will notice him even if he hates. History has proven that the world, the nations cannot ignore Christ. They love him or they hate him. History is marked before him and after him. Now, you can change B.C. and A.D. to B.C. and B.C.E., but it doesn't change the fact that history is divided based on the life of this man. We can't ignore him. And he startles. He causes people to notice. People can't not notice. One of the ways is he has many, 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 many converts of all nations. Who have been startled by the gospel, who have been shaken, who made awake by it, who've seen the gospel as lovely, even though they naturally would not see it as lovely. But God opened their eyes. He gave them faith. And so by His suffering, He would create a church, a Zion of all nations. But that startle would also include all those who hate the gospel. They can't not. Notice it. It affects them. It bugs them. It's like a thorn in their flesh. They, they can't just ignore it. We read in Second Corinthians that either the gospel is the aroma of life to people or it is the stench of death. There's no COVID in terms of affecting your smell. You can smell the gospel. It either smells lovely or it is hateful to you now some people would modify the gospel so that it's not so it's something that you can ignore something that you can sort of you can appreciate but but, uh, but without loving it I was uh, watching a, a news panel not long ago and this news panel had a religious expert from a prestigious college and she was called on to uh, she was called on to you know to, to talk about Christ in the gospel, and, and they, were, they were upset that there was, there was a pastor who was saying that Christ demands that you follow him, and the, 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 one of the, the news reporters or uh, one of the news personalities said to this religious expert, that doesn't sound like Christ. He said he asked people to follow him. He, he didn't demand that people follow him, and the religious expert said, yeah, that's right. Christ, Christ said, he said, you can follow me if you want. He just if you want, if you don't, no big deal. You like, even read the Bible even if you don't believe in Christ, if you don't believe it's true, that's not what it says. You have to modify the gospel in order for it to not be stinky. <laughs> but the true gospel is either startling, shocking, or offensive and foolish and angering, or it's lovely, it's sweet, the delight of your soul, the treasure that you would rather have than any other treasure that you could possibly have. Now, it could also mean sprinkle. (laughs) Sprinkle could mean sprinkle, which would also fit because what happened with a sacrifice in the temple is that the priest would take that blood and sprinkle it on the the articles in the temple and so purify them. Symbol was that that animal had died for the sins of the people and the, the blood was purifying it. So it works both senses. He also says that kings will shut their mouths. Some of these people who hear these things and found them foolish, are, they're converted. They get new eyes, new hearts, and they see this as wonderful. Even the greatest of humans, some of them will be converted. Many of them will be converted. Perhaps this is you. Formerly a hater of the gospel and despiser of it, And now your mocking mouth has been shut. You understand. And you love the God whom you once hated. Your mouth has been shut. This also means, though, that one day, even those who are not converted, those who are annoyed and hate the gospel, they will confess that Christ is Lord. And they will grieve as they are judged and crushed by the wrath of god who is their judge there will be no more mocking that day no more excuses for sin not even kings will be able to mock or excuse sin no more denying god's law no more saying that right is wrong and right and wrong is right that boys are girls or girls are boys No more more saying that murdering children is wonderful so long as there is a uterus wall that blocks your eyes from seeing that life. No more mocking Christ. No more saying you're not guilty, your mouth will be stopped. No more saying Christ is not wonderful, your mouth will be stopped. The Lord Jesus will be successful. He will stop the mouths of those who mock the Lord either by converting them and turning their mouths into mouths that praise him, or by condemning them and them agreeing with their condemnation. Let's look at our second point. We'll get this from the the first three verses of 53. Christ Jesus lived as a man of sorrows for the sake of the church. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why was it that he was not believed? Why was he seen as foolish? Why was this a Lord that no one wanted? The first thing we see here, one of the reasons why Christ was rejected is that he was normal, he was normal. He didn't fulfill our, our sinful life goals. We see he's not worth following. I only want to follow people whose lives produce the things I want. Right? you see these, these ads that are are, are baiting you to, to click on them. You know, this person who's incredibly successful in real estate or, or business and or stuff like that. Click on this ad and I will show you how to be just like me. Now, if that person say, look at this man, he's constantly bankrupt. He's never been able to pay his bills. He's you won't be like, follow that man. Nobody's going to click that ad you have. And so with Christ, you see, he's, he's normal. At, at best, he's normal in the eyes of the world. He doesn't do anything that gets him anything that I would want. He's, the end of his life, his life wasn't marked with praise and glory. It wasn't marked with wealth. It wasn't marked with power. He didn't have the ability to live selfishly. He didn't live for his, himself. He served the Lord and he served people. It says he came out of the ground like a plant. Now, what does that mean? Yes, he came from heaven. Absolutely, God sent him from heaven. But coming from heaven, he he took on a normal, from the dust human life. Each of us come from the dust. We come from Adam. We we are born from people who came from Adam. Regular human life. And this is what Christ's life was marked with, just being Regular or not, He wasn't noticed for being good-looking or attractive. He was despised by men. Who wants that? But he wasn't despised by God. He was hated because he was God. John chapter 3 tells us that darkness hates light. The people who are in darkness hate light. This is the reason why people rejected Christ. Because even the people who thought they were very religious and very righteous... And they might have looked so compared to other people, but then you have the Son of God, who is perfect, stands next to them. And what do they look like? They look guilty. And they hated him because of it. The Pharisees hated him for exposing their guilt. He was despised. Even while performing miracles in the last three years of his life. See, he lived a very ordinary life for the first 30 years of his life. No miracles. No praise, no wealth, no glory, no power, no attention. In the last three years of his life, he, he proclaimed that he was the Messiah. He proved that he was that, doing all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders, proving that he fulfilled Isaiah 53 and all of the Old Testament. And there was crowds that gathered and followed him, but they did not love him. They despised him. They loved his miracles, but they despised him. And he says that a few times. They said they loved him, but they actually hated him. They hated what the miracles were proclaiming about him. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He experienced ordinary grief. The loss of a father, the death of a friend, the betrayal of a friend. His own people calling for his death. What good is an all-powerful Messiah if he can't even keep himself from suffering? He's not even making himself wealthy and powerful. If he lives, he lives a life of suffering, I do not want that. If he can't prevent what I want most, which is to prevent sorrow, and this is why in part he was seen as not glorious, but we need to see his ordinary life of sorrow was in our place, because we are all called to live ordinary lives that serve God, and lives which do not escape sorrow and suffering. This is the ordinary life that Israel was called to live, in which we are called to live. This is what it means to be called to be servants of God, is to live an ordinary life, which is mingled with sorrow, which is why he was the perfect substitute for human sinners, living a regular life that is acquainted with sorrow, and yet, and yet, He did not sin. Dear friends, if your faith is in Christ, that means his ordinary life, which was acquainted with sorrow, it counts as if you had lived that life. He's a perfect substitute for you. His record perfectly can count as yours because he did what you were called to do in your place. And remember what we learned a few weeks ago. He did it while wearing his people's name tag. He wrote the test and put our name in it. He ran the race and he wore our bib. Our third point that we're gonna get from verses four to six is this. God punished Jesus for our sins to bring us peace with him. Isaiah 53, four to six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, after three years of public ministry, living an ordinary, obedient life for 30 years, he was delivered up to die, to be crucified. Now what was plain to see for everyone in Jerusalem that day what was plain to see is that this man was being crushed and not only by men but by God Almost no one in Israel that day in Jerusalem that day would say would deny that Christ was being damned by God that it wasn't just the Romans doing it at the at the request of the Jewish leaders it was God himself who was crushing this man The sun's light did not shine while Christ was being cursed on the cross. An earthquake followed that. The ground shook. The temple curtain was split into two. His appearance, you could tell that he was not enjoying peace with God. You could tell that his soul was being cursed by God. He was being treated by God as an enemy. It says here, we esteemed him smitten by God. And they were partially right. They were partially right. He was definitely being cursed by God. He was definitely not enjoying peace with God. God was treating this man as a vile enemy of his. He was being crushed for sin, but not for his own sin. He was crushed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded by God, but we are healed because God wounded Now, about a hundred years ago, a number of denominations popped up that said, read this, and, and said that healing is the right of all Christians in this life. Christ, by his stripes, we are healed. And they would say something like, healing is in the atonement. Well, this is absolutely false. The wounds which Christ suffered was not sickness, but punishment from God, and even the whips of the Romans. And the healing, as we see here, is the healing of our guilt and the escape from enmity, which means eneminess. As Jeremy said at youth, I love that. The healing is the healing of our eneminess with God. So this doesn't mean that we have the promise that we will not be sick, or that God will heal all of our sicknesses in this life, but there is a promise here that's better than that, that we have peace. Because Christ took our anti-peace with God. Its promise is something much sweeter than health or wealth in this life. But peace with God. If your sins were taken, if your punishment was taken by Christ, you have peace with God. What are the consequences to that? First of all, if you are in Christ, Your faith is in the Lord Jesus. If you are trusting in him to reconcile you to God, to forgive you, and also free you from sin, you you are trusting in him, you're resting, you're calling on him, please not only forgive me, but, but make me, transform me into a child of God. If that is your faith, one that desires Christ to forgive you and reconcile you with God, then you have peace with God, even if you don't feel it. Even if you don't feel it, if your faith is in Christ, you have peace with God. You will often not feel it. Even if you are suffering greatly, maybe God is bringing hard circumstances on you. But if you belong to him, it is not because he hates you. It is not him making war at you. It is to increase your knowledge of his love and confidence in his son. It is making sure you do not abandon the gospel. He is fixing your eyes on Christ because he loves you and because you have peace with him. If your faith is in Christ's death and resurrection, and not because you deserve it, not because you are worthy of it, but because Christ bore your wrath from God so that you have peace with him. Christ, before he died, met with his apostles, and he essentially read for them his last will and testament. It's like the, there's the reading of the will, and he's telling them, what am I going to leave with you? You can imagine this. Sometimes this happens before somebody dies. They, they tell everybody, what are they going to give to everybody? And I, I leave this dresser to my grandson, and I leave my Porsche to, my, to Derek Jesus before he is he is crucified. He meets with his apostles and he and he reads the will as it were. And what does he say? I leave with you my peace. You have Christ's peace with God because he had your anti peace with God. Dear church, how sweet to be able to pray in Christ's name because you have his peace with God. You have his relationship with God. You call on him in Christ's name. And so you can be certain he will hear that as a beloved daughter or son. He will give you what he knows to be good. Even if you ask for the wrong thing, he's not going to accidentally give you what you asked for because you have Christ's peace with him. He is your father. There also means, dear Christian, if you have Christ's peace with him, do not give in to sin. It's enemy behavior. You can't say, well, it's not hurting anyone. It's enemy behavior. You are acting as if Christ hasn't reconciled you to God. You're acting as if you prefer to be an enemy. You don't if you belong to Christ. Do not embrace or make peace with any kind of enemy behavior from yourself. None of it. If you see sin in your life, recognize this is enemy behavior. Christ was punished for this. I got to treat it as enemy behavior. This is no longer who I am. I am in Christ. I am a child of God. I am no longer an enemy. I have peace. I enjoy Christ's peace with God. Who needs this? Did you notice who needs this? How many of us have gone astray? How many? All. Every single person has broken God's law to the point that they do not just need help writing the test or running the race. They need someone to do it instead of them. And hallelujah, Christ did. Fourth point, Christ Jesus was willing to fulfill God's justice by suffering great injustice. We'll read this in seven to nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened his, not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a, like sheep that is before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You may have heard that Isaiah 53 is the forbidden uh, forbidden, uh, passage for, for Jewish people. They don't let their people... Uh, you know, unbelieving Jews, they don't let their people read this because it might turn them to the Messiah. It's actually not true. That never happened. But it is true that, that uh, unbelieving Jewish leaders will say, this is actually about the Jewish people. Isaiah 53, the servant, is actually talking about Israel and not about their coming Messiah. But here we see that is absolutely can't be true. Because we've read Isaiah 50. 2 and 51 and 50, all the way from 1 all the way. And what does Isaiah say in Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I belong to a people of unclean lips. This could only be about someone who had committed no sin. It could not be about God's people, but about their substitute. We see here that Christ was willing. His life wasn't taken, he offered it, he laid it down. In John chapter 10, Christ says, no one takes my life for me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I do it for my sheep. Animals, sacrifice, sometimes do not resist. Why do they not resist? Why does that sheep, you know, just calmly come up to the, the slaughter, to the altar? Why is it? Because he's ignorant. He has no idea that he's going to be giving up his life. They don't know what's happening, but that's not so with Christ. He spoke of it many times during his three-year public ministry. He read Isaiah 53. He didn't, he wasn't, uh, he didn't go willingly because of his ignorance. The night before, the day that he was, he was betrayed, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood. He cried out, if there is a way to save my people, without taking this punishment, Without being damned, would you please let this happen? But nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He knew what was happening, and he did so willingly. He was silent. He didn't try to excuse himself. He didn't try to escape or save himself. But not because he was ignorant, but because he was willing. Here we have in this section the idea of injustice. He was innocent. He had done no violence. And this is a summary for he did no acts of sin. But it also says he had no deceit in his mouth. That means his motives and his his heart, his words which were good were also honest. It's one thing for somebody to do something good in a deceitful way, to say something good, but in a deceitful way that doesn't really reflect their heart. Not so with him. Every good thing that he did, every good thing that he said was a reflection truly of his heart this was a sham trial everybody knew he wasn't guilty the trial was done illegally they were bribing of witnesses and still the only thing they could possibly that they could possibly accuse him of being guilty was a falsely claiming he was the messiah if he was not and also falsely predicting that he would die and rise from the dead if he did not and so we see it was a great injustice An innocent man being declared guilty, it was a great injustice, but we also see it was the greatest demonstration of justice ever. Why was it, even though it was the most incredible injustice, also the most incredible justice ever done? That's because God had for many years been promising to forgive his people's sin. For many years, he had been passing over his sin, their sin, overlooking it, covering it. He had passed over former sins we see in, in Romans chapter verse 25 to 26 and yet he would overlook his people's sins no more What would you call a judge who condemns rightly some people who are guilty in his courtroom but when somebody he has a personal relationship comes in his comes in his his courtroom then he doesn't punish that person what would you call that judge you'd call that a corrupt judge not so our god In crushing Christ, in punishing him, he was fulfilling justice. In Romans 3, 25 and 26, it says, so that he could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So he could forgive people who are sinners and yet punish their sin. Christ was willing to die. But none of his countrymen saw It this way. Of his generation, that's what they're saying, of his generation, who of them said he was suffering for the sin of my people? But God saw it that way. And so do you if you are redeemed. Our fifth point, God was pleased to find and provide salvation for his beloved church. We'll see this in verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why did the Lord do this? We know why we needed it. But why did the Lord send his son as our substitute? We see here it was the will of the Lord. That means it was voluntary on God's part. No one required God to do this. If God had, had just not sent his son to die for sinful people and he just all justly sent everyone to hell, no one would have been able to say, well, that's not a very good God. That's not a, very good, not a very just God. God was not required to send his son to save guilty people. Guilty people do not deserve salvation. That's what it means to be guilty. He did this because it was his will, his good pleasure. John three sixteen. Tells us the same thing using slightly different words. Why did God do this? Because of love. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 30, in the middle of instructions for husbands loving their wives, we get another look, same thing, but just a bit of a different angle. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Romans 5, 6-8, For while we were still guilty, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Dear church, he did not do this because he was obligated to do so. He did so because of his great affection for the church. Dear Christian, recall that often. Recall that God's love for you is undeserved. Your salvation could not have been demanded from God. God was not obligated to do this. He delighted to do this. God now did not love the cross. Christ did not love it. We saw that already in his prayer in Gethsemane. But they did love what it accomplished. Hebrews 12 12 said that it was for the joy that was set before Christ that he endured the cross. It was his delight to provide such a great salvation to his beloved bride. He would enjoy this salvation with her after his death. Christ insisted that the resurrection, as well as his death, was predicted by the Old Testament. We see this in Isaiah 53. We're talking about this man dying for his people and then afterwards enjoying the results of his death. This man would rise from the dead, and after that, he would enjoy this salvation with his people. Did you notice what the beneficiaries of his death are called? You know, we're called straying sheep at the beginning, and what are the beneficiaries of his death called here? His offspring. They're called his children. We go out as straying sheep, and we're welcomed in as his children. We can wonder sometimes if God will be faithful to the promises that he has made to us. But you know what? And that would be foolish. But you know what would be even more foolish? To doubt whether God will keep his promises that he made to his son. He says that he will see and be satisfied after he has made atonement for their sin by the suffering of his soul. He will certainly receive the reward for his suffering. He will certainly enjoy the result of his suffering with his people. This tells us that everyone for whom he died, everyone for whom he died will be saved. He did not die in vain. He did not try and fail to save any. The cross was perfectly successful. He will not fail to save any of the elect, any for whom his blood was spilled. And he will divide his spoils with the many You notice it says, even with the strong. First of all, another ambiguous thing, which is lovely how Isaiah and God through Isaiah would throw some ambiguous statements in there that, you know, does it mean this or does it mean that? Yes, is the answer. Part of his spoils is the church. This is the reward he has given. And you're like, what, sinful bride? Yes, but he loves her. And so even, even kings, even the strong, Even they cannot resist being saved by the Lord God. If Christ purchased that man with his blood, he is coming as spoil given to him by God the Father. And it also means that even the strong need this. The strong don't have their own spoil to enjoy in eternity. Their own results for their godliness and strength. They need to share in Christ's spoil and share in Christ's spoil, they will. Because he took their suffering, we receive and share in his inheritance. Our sixth point is this. Last point. The church is clothed in Christ's righteousness, not her own. We're getting that from that last bit that we just read. The salvation of the church, his beloved church, his bride-elect, the salvation that she needed was not him merely overlooking sins. It was not someone to give her a second chance. That tail song, God is the God of Second Chances, is wrong. God did not just give the church a blank slate. He's not tr- giving salvation to those who've tried their best, those who only sin accidentally. No, his sinful bride-elect, his fiancé, needed a salvation much greater than that. She needed a salvation in which her sin would be counted against her husband. And his righteousness would be counted to her. That's called double imputation, theology lesson, I'm sorry. Double imputation. Verse 11, it says that he will make many to be accounted righteous. That doesn't mean that he cleans up our life so much that that God can now accept us. That's not what it means, Does he clean up our lives? Does he change us after we get saved? He certainly does. But that's not what it's talking about. It's meaning that we are reckoned as righteous. God counts us, credits us, credits Christ's righteousness to us. We are treated as Christ deserves, not the way that God improves us enough to uh, to receive and, and deserve. You will stand before God based on what you deserve or what Christ deserves. And if it is in any way based on what you deserve, you will go to hell. But what would you get if God treated you the way Christ deserves? If Christ's record was credited to you and yours was credited to him. Oh, eternal life, love, and affection, and inheritance that we'd never stop being able to count So friends, if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, you too will stand before God face to face. Either on your death or his return. And you will stand before him in your own record as judged by God's perfect law. All your sin will be exposed. Your motives that nobody knew about, your laziness, your thoughts, your deeds, your words. You did not love God 100%. And you did not love your neighbor 100 percent, even if they all think you did. You will stand him in what you will then know and see as filthy rags. What you may now think is a stunning garment of a record that you have. I'm a good person. Look at all my I've accomplished. You now see that as a righteous robe. But you will stand before God, and you will realize. You too will realize. These are filthy rags. And you will not do what you do now by denying God's existence or Christ's right to judge the earth or deny your guilt or excuse it. You will have no plea. So repent and believe in Christ. Trust in his death for your sins and his resurrection on the third day and exchange your filthy rags for his righteous robes do not try to clean up your rags. Exchange them by faith. And now, dear church, if your faith is in Christ, you are clothed in Christ's righteous robes. Yes, you did have filthy ones. And likely filthier than your neighbors. And if you were judged by your own actions since becoming a Christian, those robes would also be considered filthy. But, You are clothed in Christ's righteous robes. So you can be confident of God's affection and care and acceptance. You can be confident that you will inherit the kingdom of God and eternal life, and not because you deserve it, but because you wear the robes of the one who does. And he already received your punishment for your sin. Not a little, not most of it, not to give you a clean slate. But all of it, all of your sins, all of your sins, past, present, and future sins, all of them, all of them gone, born by Christ. All of them punished in full on Him, in Him. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What does Isaiah say? Surely He has borne our griefs. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. Dear Christian, you are His spoil, His reward, His inheritance. God has given you to Christ. Will He fail to receive you? Will Christ not be satisfied by God for His suffering? Romans eight thirty three to thirty five is a beautiful place to end. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, dear Christians, because of Christ, we are more than conquerors. Your sin has already been punished. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you gave us a savior that we once thought ridiculous. But now, and not because we're better, but because you've graciously given us eyes to see what is true, that he is wonderful and glorious. Now, Lord, we see this as wonderful. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind in this room right now to see how great and glorious is Christ's gospel. That their mouths of mocking and rebelling and justifying their sin, denying your existence, that they would be stopped and instead mouths that praise God and enjoy Lord, I pray for those who know you already. Would we always remember the great cost that you paid for us, yes, so that we would be thankful, but also so that we would be confident. Could such a great cost fail to produce its intent? The saving of a bride, the saving of many. Lord, we look forward to the day when Christ is revealed in all his glory. And we would share in that I pray that you would hold us until that day. In Jesus' name.